This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. We're excited to have with us today Lisa Selen Davis, um, and I'll hold up this this book for those that are uh, viewing on YouTube. Um, Tomboy um, has just been released as a paperback version. Is it has it been published as paperback throughout the world now, Lisa, or North America release? Or that's a, that's a great question. I know in North America, I don't know outside. Yeah. It's um, coming out in Japan soon. Is it fantastic? Um, I. <laughs> thoroughly in, um, enjoyed the book. It's uh, quite a trip down memory lane for me having, we must be about the same age. So uh, references to growing up in the in the 70s and 80s was a real trip down memory lane for me. And uh, some of the names that you mentioned as, as historical tomboys, like Laura Ingalls Wilder and um, Jodie Foster, and who else did you, did you name? Christy McNichol, all my childhood mm. heroes and some childhood crushes growing up. So <laughs> it was um, a nostalgic read. Um, I, I think where I would like to, to start is just asking you kind of how this book came about and, and why you were interested in writing and, and investing this kind of you know research energy and, and writing energy into the topic of tomboys. Um, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to both of you. Um, the, the book came out of well, first of all, I did something that a lot of freelance writers do, which is once I start, once I had kids, I started writing more stuff about parenting. And, you know, early on when kids were in preschool, when kids were starting to divide themselves by sex more, which they don't do, you know, till around two and a half, three. Um, and my kid was, all the girls had gone off to play princess and there was mine um, happy to play princess as long as she was not a princess and playing with boys and girls, but like a little bit more with boys and, and just generally not doing what the other girls were doing. And because a, because there were no models of tomboys left, really, we have so few young masculine females around and B because it turns out nobody really understands this kind of early childhood gender nonconformity or normalizes it. I don't think anyone at the preschool knew anything about it. You know, I was trying to make meaning out of it. What does it mean that she's doing that? What, what does it portend? You know, is she trans? Is she a lesbian? You know, and, and um, now when I have people who reach out to me and ask me about it, I say like, don't worry, there's nothing to do, but be happy because if you have a child resisting gender norms, you don't have to do all that work to try to get them to resist gender norms and just let them explore and don't, it doesn't mean any, we don't, there's no way to tell what it means, but there, no one had that script ready for me. And I wrote about it. And um, I wrote about it for Parenting Magazine, and it just got thrown up on the web the day the magazine closed. So the it was never edited, and there was an essay that said, with the title, "My Daughter Wants to Be a Boy." This was 2013, and no one was fighting about this topic at all. And nobody cared, and I got a few comments of like, "Oh, that's I relate to that," 
that kind of wanting your child to be exceptional, but wanting to fit in and um, wanting them to not need approval, but wanting them to get it. That's what that essay was about. Four years later, my child was in elementary school and um, it was, you know, the kids were, were kind of adjusting. It was a little harder for the parent, the adults around her who, you know, kept what I realized now is kept trying to facilitate her social transition, but I didn't have that language then. Again, like thinking they're doing the right thing and being helpful right. and not really understanding that that gender nonconformity itself, there's like nothing that needs to be done about it. It's not a problem. And a real, uh, even the doctor constantly being like, you know, who are you? Do you want to change? Do you want to? And, and I thought it was all very sweet and caring, but I think there was a sense of like, we've got one, you know, here it is, a live trans child. And so I wrote this piece that was like, why are you assuming that because a child bucks gender norms, she's, you know, a trans boy? And isn't that reinforcing the stereotypes that were my entire childhood was all about rejecting, you know, 1970s feminist tomboys, that was a popular zeitgeist. Um, and that was, I published that in the New York Times. And that was a very different experience. A, because it was the New York Times and B, because we had started fighting about trans kids, who they were and what they needed. And there was a lot of backlash and I hadn't experienced that. It was frightening for me and um, lots of threats. And I just didn't even know what to make of it. I didn't understand how what I'd written could be interpreted as hateful. And what I ended up doing was reaching out to some of the people who had written, not everyone, because some people were really crazy and nasty, but some people wrote well-reasoned arguments about what was wrong with my piece. And some of those people I reached out to and they were willing to meet with me and I had them explain their points of view. And then I tried to publish that piece and nobody wanted like super nuanced, you know, look how I reached out to people who disagree with me. And I was just wanted to have nothing to do with it. But my agent kept saying, there's really a book here. And I said, can I write about anything else? Can I sell a book on anything else? And we did go through some ideas and she just kept saying, nope you're not done here. And I mean, she was right. And even after I wrote the book, I was like, wow, I'm really not done. I wish I could redo it now because I feel like in the last six months, I've learned so much more, but that was, um, it was kind of, it just kind of had to be done. And then I learned things that I just couldn't believe we didn't all know and couldn't believe that even as we're talking about trans kids all the time, that there, there was so much left unsaid. And I tried to put as much of it in there as I could. What kind of things uh, couldn't you believe or didn't, did you not believe? I don't know how to phrase that. Um, <laughs> things that, that you assumed we should already know or, or can't believe we didn't know. What, what, what kind of things are those? Well, the whole first third of the book is about where the idea of boy stuff and girl stuff comes from. Haircuts, clothes, colors, activities. And that was really, a that was really shocking because what most of us don't know is that we've only been having really gendered childhoods for about a hundred years. And we've only been having hyper gendered childhoods for about 20 years where, you know, from we have prenatal sex testing. So before birth, even you can paint a room pink and assemble a bunch of princess toys and really, really push the gender role 
from before the kid even or gender reveal parties, you know, which are, which are gender stereotype reveal parties. And up until about a hundred years ago, young kids, at least, you know, up until about age six, were generally having what we think of as gender neutral childhoods. And they'd be wearing dresses because dresses were, people were making their own clothes. Dresses are much easier to sew than pants. And um, they all played with the same things. Again, a lot of toys were homemade. Um, so industrialization definitely changed a lot of how we rear children. But the thing that changed how we rear children the most is the rise of psychology and sexology and understanding homosexuality as a, as a kind of, as a class of people, not just a, like a behavior that someone engaged in. This is especially in the beginning when there was more looking at feminine gay men and um, ironically, but gender and sexuality were kind of mixed together. But when that got separated from sex, oh, you can be a man, but you could be feminine and you could be gay. That really changed the way we reared children because it, there was a kind of moral panic about that. And so parents were encouraged and, and actively readily accepted the charge to impose a kind of early manhood onto children. So dress them like middle men, give them, you know, toys that show them how to be men. No one ever cares about girls as much, but there was, that was also the beginning of mop and broom toys for girls and, you know, erector sets for boys and keep girls in these lacy, frilly feminine things with flowers that, that all kids have been wearing and now only and, and put boys in these clothes with balls and bears and masculine things. So it's mostly homophobia and sexism that changed the way we started to raise children. And I couldn't I mean. That seems really important for people to know because their most parents are still participating in that. And that when you teach your kid, like, oh, you, no, no, that's for girls. You know, you're teaching them, don't be feminine. Don't like that. Everything is, everything that's on that pink side of the pink blue divide is not for you because you need to be a proper man. And I think if more people knew that they'd participate in what needs to be a cultural project of relaxing those gender rules and roles. I really feel for kids today, you know, if it, um, a child, let's say a girl is a, is a tomboy, it seems like all these different sort of ideological camps are trying to claim those children as their own. So we've got, you know, the, the trans advocate saying, oh, that child is trans. Let's transition them as early as possible. You've got lesbians saying, no, that child is a lesbian. I want to claim her or, or, you know, feminists, you know, wanting to to claim, you know, that what that means as far as gender nonconformity and expanding what it means to be female or male. So it's, it, these kids, you know, are just innocently being themselves and are being pulled by these different politics. And it it must be a very complicated time for these children to be growing up. Yeah. And I think also children learn these rules really early and they police and bully each other a lot. So they, they learn from each other too. You know, you don't touch that. That's for girls. And I don't think it's very hard to undo that because there are plenty of studies showing that if we just market things differently, you know, kids will feel like they have more opportunity to explore them or play with them. However, I think these naturally gender nonconforming kids are, or someone recently called them organically. They're just, they just go for whatever reason, 
when there's the division, they're going for the gender role of the opposite sex. Even though we know that a lot of this, at least the stuff that's in there, the color blue and, you know, certain kinds of toys, even though we know that that's relatively arbitrary, they're still going that way and they're going against the grain. And, um, and it, it might not even matter what we put in there. You know, even if we did, we just all decided that pink was for girls. I mean, pink was for boys, you know, they might still go there. And I guess I don't feel like we, even with all of this celebration now of trans kids and fighting over trans kids, I still don't feel like we, we, I, I still don't feel like we understand what, what to do when a child, what that, what it means when a child does that. And actually my conclusion was, it doesn't mean anything. You cannot know. So today, many of these kids being socially transitioned because they may be insisting that they're a member of the group because they're drawn to that group. Right. And, and parents are under the impression that social transition is not only the humane thing to do, but what you have to do to prevent your child from committing suicide um, so they, so they're, they're allowing that they're facilitating that the schools are facilitating that, but actually from my research, I noticed that everybody had the, almost everyone I interviewed had, a, had the same origin story, but they had very different adulthoods. And my feeling was you, it would, it's almost impossible to tell what childhood gender nonconformity means. And I don't just mean like, I'm a girl who plays soccer. I'm talking about, I'm really, I've gone, we divided into boys and girls and I went over there with the sex that I am not. And I, I'm just wondering, I mean, did you, Aaron Kay, you, you said that you recognized all these tomboys that I wrote about. And some of them are, are, you know, somewhat feminine. A lot of those people you mentioned did grow up to be lesbians though. Um, but did you, did that, was that enough for you? I mean, did you, did you feel like one of them or did you feel fundamentally different from them? I, I think of, uh, I, I didn't feel like I was like them, though other people said I was like them. I, you know, there were times when I was accused of, well, you're trying to be Joe from the facts of life. It's like, no, I'm just, I'm just myself. But they were obviously picking up on something that was different about me and different about them and trying to, to figure that out, right? It, it, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, we don't know what to do with gender nonconformity. Um, but I would say that those people that you mentioned from the 70s, I remember having childhood crushes on them, not so much saying they're like me, but I mm -hmm. felt drawn to them. Mm -hmm. um, if they ever do like a reboot, remake of uh, Little House on the Prairie and cast Laura as a trans boy, uh, I'll be the first one to <laughs> protest. <laughs> <laughs> um but that i mean that well is that is that is happening all the time <laughs> and is. i did i did just write a piece about that because the anybody's character in west side story who was the tomboy is now a trans man or a trans masculine person played by a non-binary actor whose sex i don't actually know but i think i know um and this is happening a lot and what i talk about in the piece is is that our understandings of sex, gender, and sexuality are so rooted in the time we're in and the place we're in. They're so culturally specific. You know, like I said, those, those things were all rolled together until a hundred years ago. So we didn't talk about the sex of a child very much because 
that made you think of like future sexuality. So kids were dressed according to age, not sex, right? Until we separated sexuality out from that. And then it was still another 30 years before, you know, gender was really separated out of that. I mean, it was happening a little bit with Hirschfeld in Berlin. And then it was like John Money and those guys here kind of like, oh, there's something even separate from all of that. It's it's taken a long time. Now we have an understanding right now of gender identity and you can have one kind of brain and another kind of body. And I'm always saying like, we have to let, we have to let these ideas evolve. This is a popular idea right now, but we are getting information in or should be taking information in that, that says like, Oh, there's more to that, to the story than that too. And so, you know, we can't look back on people in history and say, Oh, that was a, that was an oppressed trans person because they are living in the gender reality of their times. And especially when you look at women who lived as men, women who fought as men in the civil war, women who were doctors in the early 19, in the early 19th century, they couldn't do that. Otherwise, you know, you had to be a man. And so we don't know anybody's, you know, from West Side Story. I mean, there were tomboys in the 1950s, but it wasn't like the 1970s when they were celebrated. So if the story took place in the 1970s, maybe she wouldn't have even been like uh, treated so badly until the end of the movie, maybe yeah. they would have just been like, Oh yeah, she's one of the guys. And we mean that metaphorically. And now we've imposed this modern understanding of gender and we're saying, Oh, that's a transmasculine person mm-hmm. um, who was born in the wrong body and has to change their body. And that is just an understanding right now. And I think, you know, when you asked me what, what I learned from this book and what do I, what, what should people know, or, you know, what were these things that I think, like, how can people not know this? To me, that's so important. You know, we're, our understanding is, is culture bound and it's time bound. And this is the way we're seeing it right now, but it is not how we saw it before. And we can't look back with this modern lens. And as we move forward, we have to take in the information, the information we don't want to take in. We don't want to take in information about detransitioners. We don't want to take in information about autogynephilia. Like there's a, you know, the, the, the ever growing list of verboten topics, but we actually have to understand and know about them all because the story has to keep evolving the story and understanding of gender. I consider myself fortunate in, in ways, and you touched on this in the book, I grew, I was a child in the seventies and eighties. So we went from the seventies where girls and boys could look very similar, right? We had the same, same sort of bull haircut cut with, with the feathers on the sides, like you described and, and, you know, um, t-shirt and and a pair of shorts or t-shirt and jeans. So I felt pretty comfortable in the seventies. I, I miss the seventies maybe for that, that reason that just that freedom to, I don't remember thinking there was a big difference between boys and girls through the seventies. And then we went from the seventies to the eighties of eighties. Gender bending was on full, full on display. Um, so it really wasn't until there was lots of room for me as a child. And I grew up in a tiny little farming community where there, it wasn't uncommon for farming women to have short hair and, and wear plaid shirts because that was practical. My, my grandmother was not a fussy woman who had any tolerance for people that did their nails. She, she was an old school farm woman who worked physically hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really wasn't that difficult for me until 
you know, sort of the nineties as I got, became a teenager and the social rules became a lot more complicated as everyone was like pairing off into, um, you know, uh, starting to date and there wasn't a gay and lesbian community in my tiny little town. So I just felt like, where do I fit now? Because the boys are, I had lots of friends, both boys and girls as friends. And, but as teenagers, the boys started acting differently around me and the girls started acting differently around me. And they didn't know what to do with my gender nonconformity and same sex attraction. I didn't know what to do. So that's when it became difficult. I don't remember struggling much as a, as a young child. What, what, what would, I mean, I would imagine many kids at least in liberal parts of the world do feel like it's easier. I mean, at at my daughter's, school she was just telling me about a little thing where the two boys had crushes on each other but they didn't know they were gay at the same time and then they kind of passed like ships in the night and you know they're they each had crushes at different times and I just thought like oh these are seventh graders and no one this is not a scandal this is a cute story you know so in some ways I think oh it must maybe it is easier maybe it is easier at least for lesbian and gay kids and I'm still not sure with our obsession with labeling, I'm still not sure for the genuine organic gender nonconforming people, whether they're motivated because of physical differences, whether they're motivated by having like a variation of sex development or whatever, who knows why, Um, you know, I talked about tomboyism as being this protective bubble of ambiguity for young children. And then it evaporated at puberty. And that's when most people I talked to struggled. Um, The ones who conformed after that and became more feminine, it was not hard for them, but they did. It did profoundly impact their lives that they had been tomboys as children. And I'm talking about you know, pretty heavy duty, hardcore tomboys as children looked like boys, most of them. Um, even though that was not hard to do since we were, we did, we did all have short hair and little track shorts, but, um, you know, the way that it stayed with them was that they were comfortable around men and masculinity and it often helped them get better jobs. You know, that this kind of childhood tomboyism is correlated to a bunch of good stuff later, making more money and feeling comfortable in yourself because you get used to being different in some ways, but then you have the benefit of conformity. So the question is how to extend that bubble into adolescence. And I know that many that, that the many teenagers coming out as trans now, you know, it does, I think, I think some of them want a relief, a release from gender roles and gender norms. I think that what that motivates some of the kids of like, once I'm non-binary, there are no rules for me. Um, I interviewed one kid who was like, I never, I never felt comfortable like wearing anything pink or purple when I was a girl, but then I identified as non-binary and now I have purple hair and I don't, you know, so I, I and I feel comfortable. So I think it does, it can do some important work, but I still think we are forgetting that you can have one kind of body and that, you know, and act in a, in a way, be in the world in a way that most people don't associate it with that body mm-hmm. and that that is fine. I just don't, I'm, I'm still asking you know, how can we do that? And what, and what would have been the message that you two would have wanted at, as you entered puberty, what would have helped you 
feel like you could navigate the world as yourself? I had a bit of a different upbringing than uh, I was a bit, I'm a bit younger than, than you guys. Um, I was born in the mid eighties. So mo- the majority of my conscious childhood took place in the nineties. And, but I grew up in a very, um, uh, very conservative uh, evangelical environment. Oh. So it was in the nineties the was the age of girl power and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really, but by the time I was conscious of that external messaging, I think I had already kind of internalized girl is bad. I don't want to be that just because so, so for my upbringing, yes, in the eighties, I think there was more ambiguity about, about gender roles, certainly in children. Uh, but in a, in a conservative Christian environment, it was really, really hammered home. This is what boys do. This is what girls do. I was allowed to be a tomboy. Um, and in fact, that word wasn't ascribed to me, uh, via my family, but I heard that from somewhere externally. I can't remember where I was, I was ascribed by somebody as a tomboy. And I remember being just overjoyed because I thought that was a kind of boy. So I was like, Oh, you know, like, and then I found out that a tomboy was a type of girl. And I was like, okay, no, I don't want to be a tomboy, (laughs) but, um, uh, uh, but my, um, so my upbringing was very much girls do this, boys do that. And yes, I gravitated much toward, much more towards all, you know, all of that was boy. Um, but it was, yeah, it, I was taught very much that it was, that was wrong uh, yeah. to, to feel that way. And um, so it's difficult for me to answer this question just because my upbringing was quite niche and that it was so conservative and gender was really, really uh, stringently externally applied. Um, I do wonder, you know, if if that wasn't the case and that there was a lot more ambiguity, I was allowed to express and just kind of be, um, uh, you know, I, I could I could, you know, present myself how I felt comfortable, things like that. Would that would that discomfort not have have kind of gone to my body as I developed into puberty. I do, I do wonder that a lot. Um, but as far as the grand, <laughs> I also wanted to, uh, this came to mind when you were talking about the, um, uh, uh, you, you know, with, with industrialization. And I feel also with, with commercialization, uh, that, that plays a big factor in basically creating a, creating a market category that is gender as well. And so, so it's so much of, so much of um, what I see is now like this gender religion seems to be like the kind of like this, this post capitalist construction that is gender. It's almost like we've imposed gender so stringently by industrialization, commercialization, whatever, that, that we've, we've kind of decided that, that we have to like, we've taken it so seriously and we've, you know, like internalized it so stringently is that in order to, to now break free of it, we actually have to alter our bodies in the, like, it's just, it's, there's something dark there. I haven't really formed that thought entirely, but, um, um, but yeah, that's, that's just my way and my upbringing as well um, is, is I yeah, what, what could have, I think, I think what could have helped me not grow into discomfort with my body would have been, yeah, just, just being kind of like what you're explaining you know, for, um, uh, you know, for, for your daughters and, and girls in general is that, you know, this, you can be celebrated, you can, you can behave in any way that feels comfortable. And um, uh, yeah, just, just the, 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 the roles and the, the, the stringent classification, putting that on children is, I don't, I don't see how we can't see that this being, um, yeah, just, just really harmful. I think it's very uncomfortable for the adults, right? And it must've been yeah. very uncomfortable for your parents when they saw you you know, veering toward a gender role that they had not assigned to you, you were not behaving as a girl was supposed to, and that's upsetting. And 
now I think what people are saying is like, oh, well, that's a trans boy and that's fine. And like, that's making room and maybe it is and maybe it isn't. You know, I think we're, we're not taking the medicalization very ser- seriously or really asking what does, what are the long-term psychological and physical implications of social transition? And you know what, and, but what's interesting about your stories is that you two ended up in the same place, you know? Aaron K did have the freedom of the tomboy childhood and Aaron T did not. And here you both are. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly that was, that alone was not sufficient to help you feel like you had a place in this world as you were mm-hmm. before you changed your bodies. It's a difficult question. And, and, I think we've done a disservice too by denying that gender dysphoria is a psychological condition of some kind, right? Because by denying that fact, we have no way of separating like what is just a natural variation and a a natural um, diversity of expression where a tomboy still gets to be a girl versus someone who has the psychological condition, gender dysphoria, which are, are, are two, there's probably some overlap there, but they're, but they are two different things. And I think gender dysphoria as a psychological condition is probably a fairly rare thing. Um, or was, or was, yeah. But, but I think be, because we've blurred the, that, that line, we're now drawing a lot of just natural gender nonconformity into the, under the trans umbrella and medicalizing children who, didn't necessarily have the psychological condition. They're just, they're just gender nonconforming. And that's such a, so now we're seeing the numbers of trans people growing and growing and growing and growing because we're medicalizing just natural diversity, which isn't a pathology of any kind. A tomboy is, 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 is a type of girl. There's no pathology there. And not all tomboys have gender dysphoria. Or, and, and even there can be extremely masculine girls and extremely feminine boys who are fine with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And they may have a kind of gender dysphoria that could come from, it could be external entirely, could come mm-hmm. from nobody understands them. And they feel, you know, they absolutely are not like the majority of people in their category. And they have, you know, it's, they need a word for it. Their parents need a word for it. It's upsetting, you know, then there are the people who are just fine with it. I mean, there's so many yeah. different experiences and I think there's people assuming that gender nonconformity is going, is means that you need to, in kids means you need to socially transition is ignoring that, that I think what we're doing is we're, is we're taking what we know about how to support trans kids. And and actually, I'm going to take that back. I think what we're taking, what we know about how to support extremely gender dysphoric people and applying it to the entire society. Mm -hmm. So I went, I went to, I took my kid and and another mother and, and kid, we all went out and there were some other kids there. And this mother said, Oh, that, child's going by they, them pronouns. Now I've got to remember that because you have to affirm. This was a completely gender non-conform- gender conforming female with no dysphoria at all. But the mom was applying these rules or, or ideas associated with kids in extreme distress, you know, who maybe you do want to use their chosen pronoun or their chosen name because they are really having a hard time functioning at a basic level. 
And, and now we're saying we have to do that for all kids, but that's not where that comes from. And also support and affirm are not the same things. And I just think it's, I think it's worth, I think it's worth examining everything, all, all of this. I think I just want to, I think we should take everything out of the package and, and look at it. And, um, there are more people who are gender dysphoric. They might not be trans. There are more trans people. They might not be gender dysphoric. So, and then there might be a small overlap of people who are both trans and gender dysphoric. And maybe for those people, medicalization is right. And I'm not sure how you tell exactly. I have, I have spoken to, I've, I have spoken to many people who feel that that with very careful evaluation <coughs> and even, I mean, I've, I've spoken to people who run pediatric gender clinics who are incredibly concerned about the fast tracking of medicalization and concerned about, again, people not understanding that when we say support or affirm or use the pronouns that we're, we are talking about a specific cohort of highly distressed children. And we're not just talking about every single child um, out there. And some of these people have really, really stringent um, methods of evaluation and want kids to look at, at videos of detransitioners and really want to tell them exactly what we know and don't know and what might happen to their bodies. And um, those people tend to not want to do any, any media because they don't want any scrutiny. Those are the people who've been doing it a long time when it was super niche, when people would think it was horrible. People on the left would think that was just madness, right? And now they think it's madness not to do it. Again, we're talking about what we keep talking, what we keep seem to be going back to are these cultural shifts, these zeitgeist shifts. And everyone needs to understand that this happens all the time. We swing and we swing back and we swing and we swing back. You know, Aaron T was born, was raised in the hypergendering time of girl power when we took the kind of masculine tomboyism of the 70s. And those people who were reared that way then had kids. And then they were like, you know, what's powerful? Being super hot and pretty and super feminine. Right. And then, so that was a zeitgeist shift. Like, never mind masculinity, femininity is powerful. Now we have, the first generation of people who were reared with like completely hyper childhoods with, gen, you know, with, with um, prenatal sex testing, with every possible toy divided into pink and blue, with marketers realizing, oh my God, this is a gold mine. So we're just going to exploit this. And some of those people are rejecting all of this. You know, some of those people are putting X's on their birth certificates. It's a zeitgeist shift, but it's really important that we, the information we have today builds on what we already have, not just dis, not displaces what we already have. And that's, that's my concern. And that's my concern for the gender nonconforming kids. And yeah, I, I think, I think we, I think we can't lose sight of the history and knowledge that's come before. I feel like I just rambled and I don't even know where I started. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that was great stuff. Where, yeah. Where did, where, what had started that? I don't know. Well, you said one, one of the questions you had was just what would have helped. And it's a hard question. I don't know for sure what would have helped me, but I did have a sense like from 
as long as I could remember, I mean, yes, I was attracted to things that were maybe more stereotypically boyish, but I really did believe that I, that I was a boy. And that's maybe the difference between mm-hmm. the classic early onset child gender dysphoria versus tomboy, because I think that there are a lot of tomboys who are equally maybe attracted to more masculine things, um, but were confident, right. And bold about that and still, still understood that they were female. Yeah. Um, and that was, so that was the difference between maybe that kind of tomboy that you describe in the book who had this, like, you know, this energy of, of confidence. I didn't have that energy of confidence because, mm-hmm. because I was, I did, I, I was making that, that error, that cognitive categorization error is what I've been calling it. Cause I don't know what mm-hmm. else to call it, but I was making that error that I am a boy and, and that undermined my, my, undermine my confidence because I felt like something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. And so that, that was always part of my narrative is something's wrong with me. And then, Mm. so then when other people are interacting with me and, and would even in the seventies, when you're right, boys and girls kind of look the same in the seventies, I would still have kids come up to me and say, what's up with you? You look like a boy. And I heard you're a girl and that's weird. Right. So Mm -hmm. this constant Mm -hmm. message, like not just, you're a tomboy, but there's something wrong with you, wrong with you. And so I think what I needed and the theme that I keep coming back to is what I needed was a framework for understanding my experience. I needed meaning and I needed for that to meaning to not just be my personal meaning, but a cultural meaning that normalized my experience and said, okay, this is, you know, someone said, okay, what this means is you are, a butch lesbian, or this means you are this or that. Like if I just had a framework to understand it and that somehow that enabled me to still belong in the world and still connect with my peers, I think that might've been enough, but it was just so confusing for me. It was like this vacuum of understanding where I needed a narrative. I needed meaning to make sense of what I was experiencing with, because I didn't know about trans people back then. I didn't know about gender dysphoria back then. Like, these are complicated concepts that we're just now even unpacking. So I had no framework. So it was, it made, when I saw a documentary on TV about trans kids and they were saying they were these, they were interviewing these kids that were describing an experience that sounded exactly like mine of really believing that they were the opposite sex. And then the documentary said, well, if you, if you feel this way, it's because you are a trans person. Yeah. So that was the first time it's like, okay, finally, I have this framework of understanding. I have a language to describe what I was experiencing. But I don't know that that narrative is is true, right? So I I grabbed hold of that narrative because I needed something to understand my experience and describe it to other people. But the trans narrative, I don't think is entirely true. And I think it might have been more helpful if, if someone had talked to me about gender dysphoria and, and what that is and what that means and that a lot of gay and lesbian people experience gender dysphoria, especially in childhood and, and really talking to me, you know, in terms of the evidence basis, what we understand about gender dysphoria is I, I hope something that we will eventually have those answers that grounds us firmly in reality, because the trans narrative pulls us out of reality. And, and I don't see that as being psychologically healthy and I, and I think that's you know where Aaron and I have both landed because you're right we, we we have different backgrounds we both converged on the point of of medicalizing and and you know living as the opposite sex but I hope that we and we've gone through different um 
different ways of thinking about that through our transitions that both landed on this place. Like this narrative is kind of BS, like these things that we're being taught about gender and sexuality, it's not adding up and there's so many contradictions and, and then we crash, right? Because this framework that they've given Mm. us doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It doesn't make sense. There's lots of logical fallacies in, in this queer theory conceptualization of trans that anyone that takes the time to scratch the surface of it, it very quickly unravels. So if you've built your entire identity on something that is so easily unraveled, Uh You know, we experienced a crash personally, you know, as individuals. And I think this whole community, as we, as we start to pull on these threads, and I think that's why there's so much resistance, right, to, to talking about it and, and unpacking it is that it, uh, it's a very loosely knit uh, narrative that you, as soon as you pull a thread, the whole thing falls apart in your hands. So, and, and that's very psychologically traumatizing. And I'm worried about this entire community bottoming out and, and, um, and falling apart when that happens. Well, what about the people it does work for? I guess I want to know more about what, when you say like the trans narrative, what that means to you. Well, I think it used to be, because it used to be psychologists that led the field and there was more scientific inquiry into what is gender dysphoria. And I think back, you know, in the, in like the eighties and into the nineties, even into the early two thousands, we, there was still talk about gender identity disorder as a psychological condition. And it's even some of the Bush lesbians were talking about that, that, yeah, we've got, you know, we've got Gid. There was a a photographer, Butch lesbian photographer in Vancouver who did an entire art show called Gid. And it was just, you know, Butch lesbians. Um, So that, that was part of the narrative back then as we understood this as at least the homosexual subtype, this is part of the landscape of gay and lesbian people. Mm. And you see, you often see gender nonconformity within gay and lesbian culture historically. And that shifted to this queer theory starting in the, in the early, early nineties. Um, and then, and then it just, when queer theory first was established in academia, we've seen that queer theory based narrative take over and replace our understanding of what trans means that it's now um, that trans is like a type of person that is just innate to our being. It's not a psychological condition. It just, you are a trans person, I think is what's is the most significant change, which eliminates the possibility of living with it without medicalizing. Mm. You know, if you think of it as a psychological condition that, some gay and lesbian people experience, it opens up the possibility that you can be a lesbian with this condition and live with it and integrate that into your identity without ever identifying as trans or medicalizing it. But when you label it trans, I think it does put into your into your mind that, okay, what I need to do then is medicalize it and become a trans boy or a trans girl. So with all you two know now, you know, what would you say to someone who was like you? who was at any age, at age five, at age 12, you know, at age 20, what is it that we need to be saying to kids? What's, what's not in this conversation? You know, we've got this new conversation that's like, here's this category and, oh, here's one, here's one of these trans kids and let's, you know, you can live as the, as the opposite sex and we'll all accommodate you and rearrange everything. And that makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. In my experience, the people I know who've done that and, 
and at least temp- and, and then we've got, I mean, and I'm not talking now I'm talking about organically non-conforming people who are l- more likely than not to be gay later. You know, obviously that doesn't cover everybody. The, I'm not talking about the teenagers with no history of anything come, you know, with having mental problems, you know, mental health problems and not, you know, what we, what people refer to as rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is very odd to me that this has been rejected by so so many people because most of the experienced clinicians, whether they use, they don't want to use that term, but they know this is, I mean, it's very, very clear in all the literature that there are all these teenage girls and more teenage boys and who likely don't aren't, you know, it used to just be young men with autogynophilia and those would be the teenagers you see and also they'd be unlikely to desist the later they came out the less likely to desist likely because they were autogynophilic males that now are in inside baseball but um but you know they they now we have this new cohort who we just have very little research about is my understanding and and but, a new but, cohort of clinicians right because we've because oh, since yeah. the night since the 90s like when this when the queer theory started to displace the science in how we understand trans. I mean, we've got this whole cohort of clinicians who started their careers after that major paradigm shift. And 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 so they've, they've probably been taught that, you know, all of the studies about what gender dysphoria is, um, they've been taught that that's all been debunked and that's all garbage and that's a harm to the trans community that we think of it as a pathology and that's, you know, an attack on their dignity. And, and so they've been taught something very different than what the clinicians before them had been taught. So I don't know that they, they've retained any understanding of this as a psychological condition. And that goes back to why I say we need to build on the information we already have and not displace it. I think that's very dangerous. I know some of it's outdated or I know times have changed. It, it does not mean that we shouldn't be taking the information in that 80% of the kids with gender dysphoria desisted and 68, 70% of them were gay. I mean, we can't, yes, it was a different time and it was harder to be trans, but like it's still valuable data. And I just wanted to add that journalists are also being trained differently and very, you know, especially since Trump. And, and so I think they're also reporting they're there and they're also trained, you know, if you see any left or center publication that mentions the desistance literature, it's just to say why it's just to say why we shouldn't listen to it. Whereas I'm as a journalist taking it in and saying, oh, this, this is, this changes everything I've been reporting on, which is actually what happened to me when I said, no, I hadn't seen that literature, even while I was writing my book, I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't asking those questions. Um, but I do think journalists, ha- I think it's this, I think journalists, doctors, psychologists are all being trained the same way. They're all being trained to protect marginalized people and not speak inconvenient truths. And that's very dangerous for journalists. Um, but I, I also think, you know, just, just going back to the, going back to the question I didn't finish asking, which is for the kids like you who were gender dysphoric early on, who had a sense of like, I'm, I'm in the wrong, something's wrong. I'm in the wrong category. Something's wrong with me. Now you've interviewed lots of people. You've studied a lot. You've experienced this from multiple perspectives, pre-transition, post-transition, with a kind of standard trans ideology of, you know, born in the wrong body. And now with, 
oops, there's decades of research that complicates that narrative. I mean, what, what is the message we should be delivering? I, I, all I can think to say is like, is, and this is going to sound dark, but it's like why you shouldn't need to medically abuse your body in order to conform to a kind of a social classification, a social categorization, right? The category, um, the category isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, I mean, a lot of people perform, you know, perform not really perform gender, but um, um, you know, these 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 stereotypes exist for a reason, and that is that a lot of people just naturally, you know girls naturally behave in, in one way and boys naturally behave in another way, by and large. There's, there are many people who obviously, many kids who blur that classification and don't fit in the classification that, um, you know, that, that they're, let's say they're, they're, their sex designates them to, doesn't, but it's like, yeah, they just don't fit in that categorization. And that's great, you know, be, you know, be the tomboy, be the, be the effeminate boy, be, um, it, it, it just seemed, I think the way to address this and the way to answer that question is, is you, you don't need to abuse your body. You don't need to damage your body. You don't need to medically alter yourself in order to kind of, you know, to, to take, you know, to take the, the, the round, you know, the round kid and, and bang them down into a square, you know, to fit into the square hole. I'm not sure if that, <laughs> that metaphor makes any sense here, but you know what I'm saying is like, um, I think, you know, the, the, the celebrate the celebrating medicalization. Um, I mean, if we just take take a step back and and you know look at this from a historical lens, it's like this is not going to bode well. This is not going to look good. This is not going to have been a good thing that we did in order to um, to accommodate you know gender nonconformity. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's just tell the kids that their bodies aren't wrong. You know, your body is not wrong. It doesn't need to be fixed. Um, you know. The classification may not be wrong either, but it doesn't have, you know, neither has to be true. We, we don't have to say, oh, the category is wrong. You know, the category could be right, but it just it doesn't fit with you. But you don't have to change your body in order to to fit within a category. Yeah. Um, is, is all I would add. Because one of the things you touched on in the book, Lisa, was this, you know, that tomboys, for the most part, are pretty socially acceptable up to a point, right? There's a point that we kind of indulge it as, oh, you know, you kind of laugh about it, you're a tomboy, but there's this expectation that you're going to grow up to be a heterosexual feminine woman and get married and have kids and, and be normal. So I think, I think that kind of hit home for me because I, I think that was very much true for me through my childhood that for the most part people left me alone and I had lots of friends I mean me being more masculine presenting and and behaving didn't seem to be a social barrier for me as a young child and I mean there was definitely some some sort of pushback and hints me parents saying well could you wear a dress and could you do so there was some of that but for the most part people left me alone and I was fine and I think I was fairly emotionally healthy until puberty when there was that societal expectation okay now you gotta you gotta kind of drop this tomboy thing and you need to start you know start moving in the direction of being a heterosexual female um i think it might have been helpful to if there was some way that i could just continue to be my myself through adolescence and into adulthood that that I was still allowed to have the interests that I had. I was still allowed to, to have male friends and interact with them as peers and buddies, not 
you're being weird around me and you're, you're either trying to flirt with me or you want nothing to do with me or your girlfriend doesn't like you hanging out with another girl or wh- whatever. Like that all became yeah. so socially weird. And yeah. I, I remember when my grandpa died, all of his tools were um, distributed amongst all the, all the grand boys, the grandchildren mm-hmm. boys. And, and yet I was the one that was more in handy and into building stuff more than my brother was. And my brother got all the tools and I didn't get any. And so things like that, like I, rec- I felt like, I think one of the drives for me to transition was the world is not seeing me in terms of my temperament and my personality and my interests. Mm-hmm. It's like, I need to do this to my body so that you actually recognize who I am. And so there is that, that for me, and, and a, it wasn't about recreating a persona. It was, I need to do something so that the world actually engages with me in a way that's authentic for me. And I didn't see that I could do that in any other, any other way. So if, if I was still allowed to hang out with my dad and his buddies and learn how to fix his car and learn how to, you know, use a hammer and it, cause he just sort of had this attitude, well, you're a girl. So of course you're not going to know mm. what a Phillips screwdriver is like, so there was that, that as I got older and older and older, more and more and more of a push that you got to drop this tomboy thing. Yeah. And, and maybe that isn't, you know, maybe that is improving. And again, I feel like, well, sometimes these new words we have are are helping people do that, even though I even though a they feel like they have to like change names or pronouns in order to do that when we really shouldn't have to do anything, you know, to allow someone to be themselves. We could de-emphasize sex and gender instead of emphasizing it in different ways and say and just be saying as you know, this is your body and it doesn't determine that much about you. <laughs> and yeah. it's great. It's great. It's perfect. It's a beautiful body. And, uh, and it, you may or may not be like other people who have this body, but don't worry about that. That's nothing. That's, you know, I, I, we're really, really emphasizing it. And I, and my, my desire is to de-emphasize it, but I also am aware, you know, I'm, I'm aware that people have changed their bodies and they're really happy about it. And, and that there are, I mean, this goes, what you said reminds me of those kind of the people who are gender dysphoric because of external pressure versus people who are like something I would imagine with autogynephilia, it's got nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with how people are treating you or, or, you know, dad, your dad, you know, insisting you perform a female gender role that is really internal and you're wanting to change your body not so people will treat you in a certain way, but because that it's you, you have a, a, an overwhelming desire to have a female body. And I, and I think those are really different things. And, and again, if we were going, instead of just affirming everyone, if we were going to be asking questions and gathering data, we would look at those two, two very different experiences. But I'm aware, you know, I've talked to lots of people who are very happy they changed their bodies and their pronouns and their names, and they're super comfortable. And, and their perspective is, why are we, why are the, all of you people out there assuming that this is a worst case scenario? You know, why are you, why are you trying to prevent everyone from becoming me when I'm happy? And, and I think that's, that's the, a polite way of putting, putting it, but um, uh but, but that, I think about that perspective a lot, you know, they're like, why is cis better than trans? But I think what we, what we need to remember when people express that sentiment is we're actually not talking about how you identify. We're talking about 
transforming bodies in ways that you cannot take back. And that if you have a kind of gender dysphoria that is rooted in the culture, that this may not be the solution for you. Mm-hmm. And, and so we've got to distinguish between these different kinds of gender dysphoria. And we've got to say, we've got to figure out where gender dysphoria is really about a, a trans identity or about autogynophilia, about having a, a kind of sexuality that is, you know, all about, I see my, you know, my way of being sexual is to see myself as a woman and I want a woman's body. That's, but, but actually there are even some young people who are admitting there's one guy, I don't know if you've seen this video on YouTube of a very young, handsome fella somewhere in the UK. And he's talking about autogynophilia and he's, and he's got a video on why he probably will never need surgery because he understands this about himself and he knows what it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that video really had a big impact on me because I thought this, this is the problem with tamping down the research and denying people access to it or, or, or saying that we shouldn't listen to it. The research on desistance, the research on gynophilia, the connection between gender and sexuality that's so well established in this culture and many other cultures is that then people don't understand themselves. And, you know, I think what you two have been talking about is it took a really, really long time to understand yourself because you had limited access to information that was dependent on the zeitgeist, the gender zeitgeist of your time. And even in this era that we have this new supposedly expansive zeitgeist, it's dependent on keeping certain information out that you both needed to understand yourselves. And you might've made different choices if you've, or you might not have, I don't know, you know, if you'd had the information, but. It's hard to say, but I think as a, as a young child, I think it's really important for the kids and their, and their parents and teachers to understand, especially you mentioned the desistance studies and it's not just one. I mean, there's, there's quite a few desistance studies that all say the exact same thing, even though the numbers are a little bit different from study to study, but they all say the same, pretty much the same thing that the vast majority of these kids do end up being comfortable in their sex bodies. And then, and most of those kids end up being gay or lesbian. And that certainly wasn't the message that me and my family got as when I was a child, right? If someone had come to my family and, and cause I think we all knew there was something different about me and none of us knew what, what, how to make sense of that. And I think it would have been helpful for someone to come in, you know, when I was five or 10 or however, whatever age and said, you know, there's gender nonconformity here. Um, there's gen, gen, what we call is gender identity disorder going on here where Erin really thinks that she's a boy in some way. And that's, so that's what this is. And, and to tell us, you just be you, just love your child, accept your child, let your child experiment, knowing that the vast majority of the time, this probably means she's going to be a lesbian. Can you introduce her to some lesbians? Can you bring in role models, bring in some very kind of masculine women into her life to to help support and make sense of this? Instead, whereas now we're 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 kind of pushing these families and kids. Okay, you've got a trans child, so let's start a social transition. Let's kind of kind of point them in the direction of of eventually medicalizing their bodies. And I, I don't think I don't think that's the right approach. And I hope that the gay and lesbian community starts to talk about 
because they were probably that 88% of, of children that desisted, right? So where are they? You know, we need them to start speaking up and saying, yep, that was me. I was gender nonconforming as a child. And now I'm a happy, healthy gay man or a happy, healthy lesbian. We really need them to start entering into this conversation with us. You know, what it makes me- That is a good Well, I, I was, I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm so forgetful that I'm like, I better say this. Um, I think what's happening is, you know, in in these studies, let's say 12 percent did not desist. Right. And then they they went on and they wanted to change their bodies and they they were persistently trans and they are very mad. Right. That they had to go through all that and that they felt unsupported and they don't want anyone else to have to go through that. Let's say let's say that's what's motivating them. And um, but I think we're. I think what's happening is that we're part of our zeitgeist is, is, oh, the the minority, the marginalized minority, we have to protect them. So we have to rearrange everything for them. So now we're actually serving that 12% more than 8%. I don't know if there were how many kids actually would have stayed, right? Like if this was all like, oh yeah, that's fine. Trans is an option. And they were, you know, we have no idea. Every we, we're living in a in a different zeitgeist now. I don't know how many times I've said the word zeitgeist <laughs> in this talk, but um, you know, I I think that that's what we're doing is we're gearing it all toward the twelve percent instead of the eighty eight percent, and maybe that's one place we need to be looking for clues is we're forgetting about doing what's best for the majority while while still understanding that this very well may persist and that a medical transition may be the best way for some people to soothe their dysphoria. But I think we like understanding that most of the time they'll grow out of it and that we, we don't want to aim everything toward this, this small group. And I think that's hard to do. How do you keep it open so that the people who will eventually want to transition don't feel shamed, don't feel like you made it impossibly hard for them, you know, but, but still understand that, you know, we, we're supposed to do the, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. I like to think it would be helpful for kids to, to at least have a language to start to talk about it. And that's something that, you know, with kids growing up in the 70s, we didn't have like they, we didn't have a language really at least I didn't in my environment to just talk openly about it I kept it a secret that I had this you know this belief that I was a boy because it, it I felt this is this is weird no one else in the world is experiencing this like what's wrong with me so I was really ashamed of it and never talked about it and I think it would be really helpful for any kids emotional development to be able to have a language and safe supportive adults to just talk openly about it because how do you support somebody when it's this big kind of dirty secret that someone is is keeping i wanted to say that like i I was talking quite darkly uh, about about transition but i wanted to say that i was incredibly happy with my transition i felt like the the physically altering my body it brought more relief and more contentment than i ever anticipated even going into it and i felt that way for well, I still feel that way, but I have to reconsider it in the in the current lens that I'm aware of. Is like a few years ago is when I became when I got wind of the reality that what I experienced 
what I call gender dysphoria is not what other people experienced and not what, uh, not what we're all collectively referring to as trans now. And there's so many different, different life experiences and uh, internal motivations that lead somebody to transition. And that's when I had to step back and go, we are solving very vague, varied internal feelings with this very intense and specific uh, medical response to it. And that's when I had to kind of go like, and that's why I, 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 keep, I keep thinking again, I like your term that you keep using Zegas because it's so, it's so, it's so important to continue to keep looking at that, at where we are now as a specific cultural moment that we're in. And uh, um, it's not, it's not how it's always been. And it's certainly not how it's going to be uh, moving forward. I don't believe. Um, but what I wanted to also add, and then we, so, one more thing is um, that's why I think with what Gender Dysphoria Alliance is doing, it, it, it's so important that we do, as trans people, talk about all that is trans, all that is gender dysphoria, and and kind of bring that bring that to the fore um, because I feel like theoretically we should have more um, a more leeway to be allowed to do that than cis people are, right? Like to, to be like, hey, look at this, examine it from this angle, uh, just because of our, uh, you know, trans experience, as it were. Um, so we, we can we can add that uh, that kind of leverage. Um, uh, uh, but what you were saying about how, yeah, those, those say those 12% who didn't desist, those are now the trans people today who are saying, you know, if, if I had been allowed to transition when I was young, that would have, you know, alleviated so much distress and, you know, made me, you know, more passable now, yada, yada. Um, and then the majority of those kids who did desist, who are now most likely, yeah, gay or lesbian, living their lives, completely removed from the trans conversation, they start getting wind of what's going on over the last couple of years and being like, oh, hold on a minute. I had that experience, but it went away. <laughs> and then again, but because they aren't speaking from their lane, it's like, oh, shut up, cis person. You can't contribute to this conversation. So I think that's one of those cultural trends, the moment that we're in, that's, that's propagating this trans-only narrative, this transition is, is beautiful, is that the only people who are allowed to speak are those who did benefit from it. So, or though, and, and not those, so anyone who desisted is like, oh, that's a cis person. So they can't weigh on in on a trans issue. And that's why that, let's say that, that, that theoretical 12% are, are the, the, the steam train that's allowing this to go on because they're the only voices who are, you know, who are allowed to, uh, to, to weigh in, in this, in this cultural time of everybody has to stay in their lane as it were. And that, and I think I was saying that before, I think the same thing has happened in journalism, which I think is a huge, mm -hmm. I think the media is a huge part of the problem here. I know I'm a member of it and I've really been trying to solve this problem because we are also having, you know, it, it, it's in publishing in general, what's really valued now is, is your identity and your social category and only you can report on it because no one else can understand it. And it's really the opposite of, of what, you know, the pinnacle of journalism was objectivity. Well, I have nothing to do with this so that, so it makes it easier for me to report on it. Now we are aware that there's no such thing and we all have biases, but because everyone has a bias, we, we can't, it doesn't, you have to be able to report on it, whether you're a member of this group or not. And if you are a member of this group, you have to still be able to see it from multiple perspectives. And I think that the, the media is caught up in the same thing, at, at, which is 
we can't have anyone comment on this. We can't have any perspective that, that will be accused of bias in some way. And I told you guys the story before, but I had tried to write for a, a big news organization where I was writing pretty standard news stories about gender, not, not pretty essays, think pieces. And um, I wanted to write a story about multiple approaches to gender dysphoria. So I wanted to include their, you know, talking about therapeutic approaches and that actually medicalization isn't the only way. Now this actually should, every person writing about it should be mentioning this. And I also wanted to talk about a little bit how it's hard to know who's a, you know, we are saying a trans kid is any kid who says they're trans, but actually it's gender dysphoria and trans are not interchangeable. And I just wanted to like point this out. And I, I wanted to get some support because I thought I might get really bashed on social media. So I just wanted to make sure I wouldn't be that my editor knew what I was doing and that she would have my back if they came, you know, if somebody came for me with the threats or, or that I could still work. Pitchforks. Yeah. Just that I would, you know, anyway, I wanted some institutional support. I'm a freelancer. I don't have a, I don't have a community. I don't have a tribe. And I also didn't have a ton of people to talk to about this. Now I've met more and more people who want to have this complicated conversation. So I feel like I have a little bit of a community now, which has changed everything for me because I feel less crazy. I mean, I feel crazy, but not about this. Um, like, oh, you, you are also seeing that we've covered this totally wrong, right? So um, anyway, instead, what happened was the, the story that they said, no, don't write the story. And I never wrote another story about that particular issue again for them. And, but one of the things I thought was interesting was that they said, well, you're, you're biased and you're biased because you want to protect the tomboy category. And, and if you think about what they're, what that is, is what, what it's saying is I want to, I want to make sure that children can be gender nonconforming without being medicalized, which is, I think an extremely reasonable position. You know, I'm not telling no one to do it. I'm not saying ban it. I'm not out there with those flags. I'm, I'm saying gender nonconformity is natural and the press isn't covering this right. These are my two things that, that I like, I'm, I'm sure about, and I'm really unclear about everything else. So um, I just thought it was interesting that I was marked as biased. And what marked me as biased was that I wanted to have many different viewpoints in an article. And that's super troubling, right? Yeah. We, we're going to write about this issue and we can only talk to those 12%. And I don't want to, and I don't want to disparage those 12%. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'm, you have the right to live as you want to live. And I understand if you want to spare people pain, but unfortunately I think a lot of people are being caused pain. <laughs> because they are confused because they're in the 88% and not the 12, whatever the numbers are, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. the numbers would be different today. We should replicate these studies. I think we should be, I think every single person who is socially or child who is socially or physically transitioned should be followed for, for 15, 20 years, you know, because I think we need to know what we're doing and if it's safe and effective and healthy. <laughs> I, I mean, that, I can't believe that, that this is radical, but I also, <laughs> I think that 
I have now taken in all this information and that's where I've landed. And all I want to do is make sure everybody has the information that I have. And I have written for very large news organizations. I've written hundreds of articles about everything, but I've also written many articles about gender. I've written a nonfiction book about gender, about the psychology, history, biology of not gender nonconformity. I should have my bona fides to be able to do this. And I have not been able to disseminate this information. And I, it's vital. It's mm -hmm. vital that everybody, wherever you stand on this, knows all of this, all the information, all the desistance literature. And then, you know, maybe the studies that show things are going well and, and, that, and that we have the ability to understand, you know, how to read those studies, which is admittedly pretty difficult for me. Um, and to make sure we have not just short-term research mm -hmm. and I, then we can make decisions and then we can also allow our zeitgeist just working it in one last time to evolve, right. Instead of insisting that it stay right here and for it to stay right here, we have to edge out so much important information. We've got to let the story evolve. We've got to let the story develop. And, you know, and we were talking about before, Right now, independent media, like your podcast, is how we're going to do it. But we, we, most people are so poorly informed. We, we do have to get the mainstream media involved. And again, I'm not advocating that we ban anything or make anyone feel bad or say, you know, I, I have my personal feelings, but they're not important. My personal feelings about how I'd like the world to be are not important in this story. All that's important is all the information to everybody who is participating in this. And even those who aren't, because the way we're teaching gender in, in schools is we're getting, you know, we're teaching everyone how to think about it and we're missing so much important information. You know, when you teach that gender is a feeling, just a feeling and, and not a, a system designed to make you behave a certain way based on your sex, or when you teach that gender and sexuality are not connected, when we know that they do have a relationship of some kind, you know, it's, it's touching everybody's lives right now. So we've got, we really, we really need to properly inform people just so that we can have a real discussion and decide some, what to do that's fair and safe. I can appreciate how hard it would be to, to even do really good research about any of this right now. Um, I mean, to replicate the desistance studies, for example, I mean, we live in a world of, of ideological capture. I don't know what, how watchful waiting would even work now with kids, you know, because there is this push on any gender nonconforming kid, you know, this, this push towards trans yeah. and, and that carrot dangled in front of them of, well, you can, you could medicalize, right. It is such, such a tempting carrot to, to grab. Um, and then the other part of just people in the trans community really, um, really sticking to the narrative and, and never wanting to say anything that contradicts the narrative, right? And that fear that it's this very kind of stubborn, I don't know what, what to even call that, but just, yeah, this, um, this capture and this fear to ever stray and dissent from the political narrative. So I don't know, like if you were, if you were even to, to survey all trans people and say, you know, are you happy with it? Like, how are you doing 20 years later? I don't, I don't know. 
that we can count on the trans community to be really honest about some of those survey questions because they're always going to answer according to the political narrative. It, it and I don't even know that people are doing that consciously. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that if they if they can't scratch the surface of that narrative because they're too afraid to, how are they ever going to really reflect honestly on how this is going for them and and. And there's such a loyalty to other trans people too. It's like, well, I don't want to complain about this botch surgery that I had because I don't want to compromise it for all the other trans people who could benefit from it. And we don't even know what those ratios are. Like, do we know that like do maybe 80% of the time these surgeries aren't going well and people aren't happy with it. But if they're not willing to honestly say that because they don't want to, maybe they're assuming that 80% 80% are benefiting from it and they're the, the tiny percentage that aren't. And it's, so we don't even know, really know, I think, honestly, what these numbers and ratios look like because everyone is, is just sort of towing the party line and, and won't ever speak anything that could possibly compromise or contradict that party line. Well, I think also you lose your community. There's such a huge price to pay mm-hmm. for speaking up. And, you know, I haven't... Like with- I just got a community (laughs) and I don't even know what it is. You know, I'm not gender critical. I don't belong to, I don't, I just know that there are people who are concerned and want to tell a more complicated truth. And those are my people, you know, but the heterodox community, the heterodox community, but I, I, and I'm grateful for them. You know, I'm grateful. There are people out there who are like, this is, we cannot be looking through this narrow a lens, but I can understand what a great risk it is to speak out and have and be, you know, the de- the detransitioners, the you know the ones who are detransitioning because of regret, which I think is most of them now. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Because we just really have Lisa Littman studying. We do. I mean, I would be. I. We just need to be researching everything, and I think what many. I think the trans people who feel like they were they were guinea pigs for years and mistreated or like, don't research us at all because, you know, we just want to be ourselves. And I get it. I do really understand this point of view, but unfortunately there are a lot of people medicating who aren't happy with it and aren't trans. And, you know, the whole, we have to open the whole thing up and look critically at it so we can figure out what to do. So you're not, you know, if trans is this huge umbrella, well, you know, you have to figure out not everyone under that umbrella is, is going to have their mental health improved by radically altering their body. And some of them are going to have their mental health destroyed by it. Seems really important to figure out who's who. Yeah. And even amongst the trans people that are, would say that they're happy with their transition. I've heard some of them say, you know, had the world been different where they felt like they could just exist in the world and have community and, um, and support for who they were, they probably wouldn't have felt driven to, to medicalize their bodies. And so it's all, you know, it's all well and good to say, yes, I mean, we need to work towards a world in which gender nonconformity can just exist naturally and we can be healthy and happy. But the, I mean, the reality is we haven't lived in that world. So we can't, I, I don't want to be yeah. judged and I don't want to judge other trans people for having made this decision because it's it's their gender nonconformity interacting with the world that we live in and and we don't mm-hmm. live in one world we live in different cultures and different families and 
you know, what things look like in my tiny little farming community is different than somebody who grew up in a, you know, liberal upper middle-class family in the big city, you know, we have these different realities. We're not living in a single culture. We, we live in North America. We've got many, many cultures within, um, within North America. So. Well, and also um, at the, the world abroad, like you were saying, uh, Lisa, that your, that Tomboy is about to be published in Japan. It's like, that's going to have a completely different um, perspective in Japan. Like how, how, how gender is kind of categorized over there is, um, I, I, I think it seems to me be much more stringent even than, than here, right? Like, um, so that'll be, it, it's very interesting to look at, yeah, not this, this conversation, not just in, in our current time, but um, yeah, uh, around the world, it's going to look very, very different. In fact, tomboy in many parts of Asia is a category for adult females who are either butch or trans. And Ooh, I didn't I okay. didn't have time to get into that in the book. It just felt like, oh, that's a whole other thing. But that and also I thought I would get a giant advance and like, you know, have a tour of Asia and write about Asian tomboys. But um, yeah, they have tomboy in the Philippines. There's a, a tomboy um like beauty contest where these super masculine women go out and parade themselves. And, um, and it's a kind of a sexuality in Thailand, a Tom. So the word indoors there, it's pretty, it's out of favor here. Um, and it's, and it's directly connected to gender and sexuality in adult women. And that line that seems to be very loose there between trans and butch, which I, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And I guess that just goes back to, you know, we're, again, we're, we're understanding this in our own cultural context mm-hmm. and gender nonconforming people have always existed and they're pretty much in every culture. And I think we're the only culture. I think the West is the only place where we're medicalizing them. Um, but I think that's because that's not an option in the, in those other cultures. But well, in Thailand and in, in South Thailand, Asia, certainly true. in male, yeah, male to female transitioners. That's true. And it's, it's Thailand really is Thailand. It's big. It's big business. Yeah. 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 A lot of people are here, flown over there to to, yeah. to, to for SRS. Uh, but that really is. I, I like that what you just said about about the tomboys in like in um, in the Philippines and elsewhere because I always thought it, like Helen Joyce wrote about this in her book. I'm, I don't know if you read Trans when yeah. Ideology, but she she talks about how uh, you know in a lot of there's all these cultures that have a classification for the highly effeminate male. Yeah, and it kind of serves to to preserve the classification of male of masculinity, right? Yes. And so I was wondering, is like, does does that exist in cultures where there is like a, a subclassification of women that is highly masculine uh, women? And and yeah, so I- So, so yes, there's the Fafafine, there's the, uh, the males right. now, the Muxas of Mexico, um, the Hydra, there are a bunch of others in, I can't remember how to say them, something like the Trestavi of Brazil, something like that. And yeah, the, these are all highly feminine, androphilic male. So we would think of as feminine gay men, but that's not how they think of them there. However, they have a category for them and um, they are understood. And in some places they're tolerated and in some places they're oppressed. Um, and so, in some places they're fully accepted. Um, but most of those places, it's not okay to be gay. So this right. is like the way the culture understands them. There, there are women too. There are women in those, in, you know, the Muxis, whatever that, unfortunately, I don't even know the female names for them. There is some version, female version of Fafafine. 
Um, generally, cultures are less concerned with when women are more masculine, right? And and you know, as you were talking about Aaron Kay, like, you know, in farm communities, there are women and, or even in the Midwest, women with short hair and, and, uh, you know, plaid shirts and work boots. And, um, but yes, there are, there are often female versions of those categories. Um, but they're in much fewer numbers and far less studied. And I, and I think mm. that's because we just, tend to not be as interested in women. And when, you know, when we first started gendering childhood, it really was much more about making the boys be straight than it was about making the girls be passive. I mean, that, that was part of it, but the real panic was over boys' sexuality. So I do often wonder if having a category would help us and that maybe it's sometimes the category of non-binary, like I said before, can do that work. And that's also increasingly associated with medicalization to make you look neither male nor female. So I, and, and you still have to change things about yourself, change your name or your pronouns or your appearance or, and I don't want to say that that's inherently a problem. I'm just saying if the idea is just acceptance and understanding, you know, again, I, I think de-emphasizing sex and gender is, would be, would be really nice. It's the total opposite of where our culture is going, but I think it's super helpful to, to locate how we're handling these subjects right now in cultural context, in temporal context, to look at what happens in other cultures and to see, is there more acceptance or understanding there? Is there something we can learn from there? We're often doing the opposite and saying like there are trans people in these cultures, but it's a very different, that's imposing our understanding onto them. Some people call that colonialization like of gender in, in other cultures. And I think it's important to pause and take in as much information as we can and then try to assimilate it. And I think it's important to ask these questions that we've been, we haven't really come up with clear answers, right? I mean, you would be, you would be the best experts in the world on how should we help these genuinely gender non-conforming children feel comfortable and find a place in society. And it's still, even knowing all you know, it's still hard to find the answers. To me, that's an indication that we have to keep searching for them. And we have to keep asking the question over and over till we come to a place where it's acceptable to question, where dissent is valuable, and where we look at all the research and are comfortable with how hard it is to figure out what to do. Well, put. well said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, um, for, for coming on the show and, and talking to us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk to you both. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.